and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This ends this reading in God's Word. Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our uh, God and Heavenly Father, these are glorious, glorious truths of which we have just read. Lord, it is our desire that something, O Lord, of the glory of this passage would be presented before your people today. And so we plead with you that you would, first of all, enable the one who preaches to preach far beyond, Lord, his own native ability and weakness, but to present these truths clearly. Lord, we pray as well that by your Holy Spirit, you would open up our minds and our hearts. Lord, give us a vision for what yet awaits. Grant us faith to believe all of your promises. Lord, the devil would be active today, O Lord, to seek to blind our minds and cause us to question in our hearts whether these things really be so. O Lord, draw near to us, we pray, by your Spirit. Strengthen and equip your people by your truth. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Uh, The writer Nancy Guthrie, in her book on Uh, Revelation, uh, says that there are a couple of different phrases uh, which encapsulate something which each one of us experiences in this life. Uh, And the first of those phrases is this, that we say, this is not the way it should be. Or how many times... Perhaps you've said that when you faced a job uh, that is frustrating or not fulfilling or a time when uh, it seems that justice or fairness isn't being done or when your relationships, which you prize so much, turn out to be very fragile indeed. Or when you experience losses that are very painful. This is not the way it should be. There's a second phrase as well that encapsulates something else in our experience. And this phrase is, I was made for this. 
Uh, perhaps you have said that when you get to do something that seems particularly to suit your gifts or your personality and gives you a real sense of enjoyment and fulfillment. You, you have the feeling that this is good. This is, this is what I was made for. I was made for this. Now, each one of these two phrases can be explained theologically, right in line with the storyline of the Bible. That first phrase, this is not the way it should be, is a phrase which comes as a result of the fall. Right? Adam and Eve's fall into sin. After God's good creation, we read that this Creation, then, is under a curse because of human sin. And death, and pain, and loss, and frustration, and suffering have come into the world because of this curse, and because of human sin. So things are not the way that they should be. But that second phrase, I was made for this, is also a phrase to be explained theologically. And it's really what Revelation 21 and 22 are all about. Because this is saying that someday, after the judgment day, after Jesus' return, all those who belong to Jesus Christ are going to be in His presence in a renewed creation, and there we will be able to say, as we have never said before, yes, I was made for this. And indeed, what we're going to read these next several weeks out of Revelation 21 and 22 are really the answer, God's final, ultimate answer, to the problem created by the fall and the curse. It's actually amazing, rather amazing, how many echoes there are of the book of Genesis in these last two chapters in the book of Revelation. Uh, The writer William Hendrickson points out several of these uh, things. Here in Revelation, we're going to see the new heaven and new earth, which echoes, of course, God's creation of heaven and earth in Genesis 1. Uh, In Genesis, the luminaries are called into being sun, moon, and stars, but in Revelation, we're going to read that the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God lightened it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Uh, Genesis is going to describe a Genesis describes a paradise that was lost as a result of human sin. Revelation describes a paradise that is restored as a result of the new head of humanity, Jesus Christ, and His perfect obedience. Uh, Genesis describes the cunning and the power of the devil. He's introduced in that garden in the form of a serpent. The book of Revelation tells us, as we saw in Revelation 20, that the devil is bound and he's hurled into a lake of fire and brimstone. Uh, Genesis tells us of man seeking to flee God and to hide their face from the Almighty as a result of sin. Revelation 21 and 22 tells us now of that time when God Himself will be among us, with us, repeated time and again as our God. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, 
and he shall tabernacle with them. Genesis shows us the tree of life in the midst of that garden, that sacrament of God's presence that was going to be that was forfeited because of sin. Well, in Revelation chapter 22, we will see that indeed all who are in this restored paradise have the right to come to this tree of life. Dear friends, this present world is not the way that things should be. But praise God, there is soon coming a day, a world in which all who are redeemed by Jesus Christ will be brought. And we will be able to say as never before that we were made for this. Well, what is it that you were made for? That's what I want to ask in these first four verses of Revelation 21. What is it, dear child of God, that you were made for? We're going to see three different things. First of all, that you were made for a new creation. Secondly, that you were made for a new community. And thirdly, that you were made for a new blessedness. New creation, a new community, and a new blessedness. Well, the first of those things is a new creation. We read of this in verse 1. When, again, after the judgment day and the resurrection has taken place, you remember we read of all of that at the end of Revelation chapter 20, Christ has now returned. All have been raised. There has been that great separation. And finally on this, we saw you last time as well how it is if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But now what about the rest? We read in verse 1 of Revelation 21 this, Then I saw, he says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is speaking of a transformation that is going to take place very suddenly, in an instant, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could ask the question, well, what is the nature of this new creation that is being described here. Is it, on the one hand, the replacement of the old world with a brand new one? That is, is one discarded and another world put in its place? Or should we understand this as the renewal or the transformation of that old creation? And I believe that the Scripture seems to point more towards that second option, towards the renewal of the old. That what is being described here is a transformed world. That is, paradise regained. This world freed, finally, from the curse of sin, where we shall dwell forever with the Lord. Now, why is it that we think this? Well, a number of different reasons. Uh, the first just has to do with the word new that is used in verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There are actually two different words in the Greek for the word new. Uh, one word for new would refer to something that is another. New in terms of time, something that would replace another. Well, the second word for new 
And the one that is actually used here in Revelation 21.1 is the word new that would refer to something that is different in quality. Okay? And that's the word that is used. to something that is different in quality. And so in this, there's actually a kind of similarity or uh, parallel to what happens to our own bodies at the time of the resurrection. Right? When we die, our bodies go into the grave. At the resurrection, what happens? Are we given a brand new, completely different body from the old? And the answer is no. Rather, it is our bodies. We retain our identity. It is our bodies which went into the grave, which will then be restored again unto eternal life. Our bodies, which were sown a perishable body, will be raised a glorious body. But the body is the same one. It's a remarkable transformation that happens at the time of the resurrection. And what happens with our own bodies is what is going to happen to all creation. And in this, there is a kind of theological principle, dear friends. And the theological principle is this. It is that grace restores nature. That is, God's creation is a good creation. It's not evil in itself. It's good. The problem in our present world is the problem of human sin. And God's answer to human sin is not to discard His good creation, throwing it out and starting over again, that would mean that Satan has won. But rather, what does the Lord Jesus do? Well, he conquers sin. He restores what he has made to be good. He restores it to its good purpose. And so actually, throughout the New Testament, we, or throughout the Bible itself, we read of this idea. Romans 8 and verse 21 is a key text here. Romans 8 and verse 21 Listen to what this says. Well, let me move back uh, to verse 19. It says there that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you hear that language? It's God's good creation, right? God's good creation subjected to futility. Why? Because of human sin. But the creation itself, as it were, longing to be released from its bondage and to obtain that glory of the very children of God. For creation itself to be restored to what it ought to be. Well, another verse is that of Matthew 19 and verse 28. Matthew 19 and verse uh, 28. Uh, There the Lord Jesus is speaking about the age to come. And Jesus says to them, uh, Truly, uh, I say to you, in the new world... Okay, now if you have a 
ESV Bible, there's a little footnote there. It says number one, and you go down in the bottom and you say, in the Greek, that language of new world actually says in the regeneration. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It uses the word regeneration. And so in the same way that you and I, when we become Christians, receive this new birth, not becoming different people. I mean, we're still ourselves, but we are different in that we are now a new creation, right? We're renewed, we're transformed. It's saying that's what's going to happen to all of creation at Christ's second appearing. It's going to experience a kind of regeneration on that day. Well, you might ask at this point, yes, I hear you, Pastor, but what about 2 Peter chapter 3? 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, There it says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What about this passage? Well, that sounds like a rather dramatic thing, and it is going to be a very dramatic day at Christ's appearing But 2 Peter 3 actually carries with it an analogy, and the analogy is actually to the flood in Noah's time. Do you remember at Noah's time what happened? There was a flood that came upon all of the earth. It was an earth that was marked by sin and misery, and things were swept away by the flood, and there was, as it were, a new start for Noah and those who were saved in the ark. And and that's the idea, I think, ultimately, of 2 Peter 3, that yes, there is going to be fire, as it were, that comes, and what is it going to do? It is going to, uh, as it were, uh, 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 remove every single stain of sin, every trace of death, that there is going to be a radical purifying of this order. And the bringing in of this restored creation to exactly what the Lord had intended it uh, to be. That's what's going on. So in Revelation chapter 21 again, there is a new heavens and a new earth. A new heavens and a new earth, which is actually creation restored to its original intention. Verse 5, what we're going to get to next week, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, Behold, I am making all new things. But rather, he is making all things new. Stain of sin, every trace of death, dealt with in this renewed creation. So what it teaches us, dear friends, is that when we think of this eternal state, after the coming of Christ, well, we ought not to have in our minds that it's going to be kind of just floating along on clouds, a kind of ethereal existence, something along those lines as it's popularly portrayed. There's a kind of earthiness to it. There's a physicality to it. We're going to be in resurrection bodies. We're going to live in a restored creation. 
a new heaven and a new earth. They're with God in our midst. Now, we're not given lots of details. I don't think we're meant to know lots of those details at this stage. There's going to be continuities and discontinuities with our present creation. But dear friends, it is going to be a restored world that the Lord brings us into where we are going to live with Him with resurrected bodies. What a glorious picture this is. Now, it goes on to say that there's not going to be a sea. There will be, the sea was no more. I think that's rather interesting. Didn't the Lord create the sea with all of its beauty and all of the sea creatures? that fill up the sea, and so much of God's marvelous creation is seen in the waters. Does this really mean that there's not going to be a sea in that final world? Well, what I think it's talking about here is it's a symbolic picture. I don't think literally it means that there will not be any water, any oceans, any seas, any bodies of water in the new heavens and new earth, but what it means is this, that in the Old Testament, the sea was so often associated with chaos and confusion and danger. Okay? The Israelites didn't have any great naval heroes. Okay? The sea was a great unknown to them. They they didn't like it. All right? And even you think of the imagery of Revelation, one of the beasts is a beast who comes out of the sea. It's a terrible picture for them. And it's simply saying symbolically here that all that is terrible, all that are marks of the curse, all that brings confusion and danger, none of that is going to be any longer in God's restored creation. Well, here we have a perfect place for us to dwell. One writer, Don Fortner, has put it this way. He says that when this earth is is returned to its uh, primitive beauty, it will be a glorious habitation for the glorified children of God. I think that's such a beautiful thing, way to think of it. What is God doing? Well, He is making new this glorious habitation for the glorified children of God. Here is a beautiful world beyond compare that the Lord will make for you and for me to dwell in forever. Matthew 5.5, one of the Beatitudes says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What an incredible statement that is. You know, I think probably some of you wish that you had maybe better inheritances in this world than you do. You You wouldn't mind the inheritance that would leave to you that private beachfront property, you know, in the uh, 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 down in the Outer Banks of North Carolina or something like that. A glorious home, modern amenities, private beach, all of the rest. You think that would be a pretty nice inheritance to have? Well, what this verse is saying is something so much more grand than that. This is saying that your inheritance is going to be a world that is utterly free from all the effects of the curse and of sin. A world which the Lord is restoring and remaking, and it's for you to live in. This is, this is your habitation. This is your everlasting dwelling place. It belongs to you. What a beautiful picture this is. You and I receive this restored inheritance or this, this, uh, this new creation. So what are you and I 
made for, we are made for a new creation. Let me just make this additional point of application, and it's just simply this. It is that, it, that all of this also ought to give us a kind of certain wonder as we live, even in this world, opening our eyes to the greatness of God's creation. We look around us at all that the Lord has made, the mountains and the seas and even the trees and the bugs, and all of it is, is beautiful. It's His handiwork. And someday this glorious creation that He has made is going to be free from its subjection to all futility. What a glorious thought that is. Let us wonder at the marvel of God. A new creation. Secondly, though, let's move on now uh, more briefly to a new community. A new community. It goes on to say now, uh, verse 2, that I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as as a bride adorned for her husband. It speaks here about a new Jerusalem. It's actually a Jerusalem that is contrasted with the old Jerusalem. You know, as Christians, we ought to be utterly preoccupied with Jerusalem. Now, what I mean by that is not by that city that currently exists over in Palestine. We ought to pray for that city and like we would pray for any other city in the same way across the face of this globe, dear friends. You and I ought to be utterly preoccupied with Jerusalem in the sense of the new Jerusalem. Church, and especially the church as it will be glorified one day. That ought to fill our vision. And that's, we ought to live with a, a fervent longing and an expectation for that day. We ought to mark our identity now by what we are going to be one day as part of this new Jerusalem. So the new Jerusalem here represents the complete fulfilled church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice, first of all there, that it describes the new Jerusalem as coming down out of heaven from God. And this reminds us that this new Jerusalem is a result of God's sovereign grace, not human effort. Can utopia, that is, can human perfection be reached by human effort Can it be reached by simply better education or better legislation or by the right social programs or by international forums? And the answer is no, but rather humankind perfected comes how? It comes by the sovereign grace of Almighty God. This doesn't mean that we ought not to work for things like better education and social services and business for the purpose of human flourishing. But dear friends, our ultimate hope is not in those things. We serve God in His world now. But our hope always rests in what He is doing and what He will sovereignly, ultimately do in this new uh, creation. So just as our own personal salvation rests in God's grace and not human merit, so the glories of this perfected church are glories that rest in God's grace and not human merit. And so here this perfected, glorified church is described as coming down out of heaven from God, but then it's described next, you'll notice, as a city. What an interesting phrase. It's a city. Cities. 
uh, denote permanence and stability. And a great number of people. Think of Abraham. Hebrews 11 describes Abraham as looking forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And that's what the redeemed church is going to be like. It's going to be like a city on that day. But it's also then described as holy. Holy. That is, it is a holy city that God's people in glory will finally be free from all sin. What a thought that is. All of those sins which so plague us and so enslave us here on this earth, all of that selfishness, our sexual lust, our jealousy, our bitter complaining, our covetous grasping for more, our idolatry which tries to turn things which are not gods into gods, all of those things will be gone. And instead, we will be marked by holiness. A holiness in our outward conduct. The holiness that arises from our hearts. We will be a holy city. And is that not God's purpose in His redeeming work? The Father elected us from time past or from the found, before the foundations of the world, what? So that we should be holy and blameless in His sight. The Son redeemed us by His giving of Himself on the cross, so what? So what? That He might wash us with water by the Word, that we might be His pure and spotless bride. The Spirit regenerates us and indwells us. Unto what end? That we might share in the holiness of this One who is the Holy Spirit. And so the triune God is that is He who works for our holiness. And we read here that there is finally coming a day when you and I shall be made perfect in holiness, freed from sin. But not just freed from sin, devoted purely unto our living God. That you and I shall know something of the holiness which is the resplendent beauty of heaven that you and I will finally have the pure character of our God. So this new Jerusalem is from God. It is a city. It is a holy city. And actually, let's just for a moment think on that idea that it's, that it's described as a holy city. Put those two things together for a second. Okay? In our present world, Cities are often magnificent places. Places of learning and of industry and of commerce and of human culture. There are places that are filled with image bearers of God. But they are anything but holy in the day in which we live, right? They're marked throughout by sin and misery. Our cities, more than anywhere, are marked by fallenness, drugs and theft and murder. And the miseries of poverty and of loneliness. A place where all the various needs of all the various people are seem to never really be met. That's what marks the cities in our day. I think one of the, the signs of the fallenness are, are the sirens that you hear continually in cities. Sirens that are because of police having to come and restore order. Or sirens that are ambulances taking people to hospitals. Or sirens that are fire sirens, putting out fires, all of this a result 
of the fall. But now imagine a city, he's saying, in glory. It's not going to have sirens any longer. But rather it's going to be a place where people love God perfectly and love one another perfectly. You're not going to have to put locks on your doors. Okay, There's not going to have to be a police force to, to keep order. There is not going to be uh, the constant debating and the constant sense of futility as we try to solve one social problem after another, but rather it's going to be a place with perfectly restored image bearers doing together what God has made us to do. It is a holy city. But then let's move on. A further description of this new community is, verse 2, that it is a bride adorned for her husband. What an interesting thought. This holy city is also a bride ready to meet her husband. We talked about it actually back in Revelation 19. It's it's the same idea, the wedding supper of the Lamb. That if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are betrothed to Christ now. You are engaged to Him. He has paid the the bride price with His own blood. But the wedding celebration awaits when we shall be forever with Him. And that's what this is describing, that you and I are going to be a bride adorned, ready for that celebration with our bridegroom. You know, many of you uh, have various experiences uh, with marriage in, in this life. Uh, some of you have experienced the joy of good marriages. That image of Christ's relationship to the church, and these marriages have provided a companionship and shared experiences and the joy of knowing and being known. Others of you have longed to be married, but have never been married. That gift seems to have been withheld from you, and perhaps it has been a struggle for you. Others of you have been married, but you wish that you hadn't been. It has been filled with betrayal and broken promises and perhaps even abuse. But the Bible tells us, dear friends, that whatever your experience of marriage in this life has been, that marriage in this life is never the ultimate thing. Your good marriages are but foretastes of a better wedding day. And those of you that have not been married or have been in bad marriages have not missed out on what will be best. But rather, this is telling us that the day of all days is coming. That when the day when you and I shall be forever united with our heavenly bridegroom and Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a new community this will be. That together we get to be the lovely bride of our beautiful Savior. What a picture this is. Beautiful picture in verse 2 of this new community. Let me just make a couple of applications. And first of all, to say this, that here in Revelation 21-2 is an answer to the kind of self-loathing and self-hatred that many people experience. Perhaps this is true of some of you, that you hate who you are. You don't like who God has made you. You struggle because you don't have the talents that other people have. 
Sometimes you struggle to make it through each day. And can I encourage you, dear brother or sister in Christ, if this is you, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to see how precious you are in the sight of God. That this, this is what he is going to make you to be a part. That there is coming a day when you will be freed from all sin. And you will be in his presence and you will be his beautiful bride. And he loves you that much even now. And so, dear friends, think about that. Think about that. And you say, you say, well, I'm no good. I don't deserve any of that. Well, welcome to the club. None of us do. It's the gift of God's grace for each of us. His amazing grace, His extraordinary love that God is going to make you and me made of the dust of this earth. He's going to make us to be the stuff of glory. To be His glorious and resplendent bride, part of His holy city. So where do we find our worth? We find it in Jesus Christ. That's where we find it, friends. Always and only in Him. But let me make a second application, and that is that remembering the church's destiny ought to make us love the church now. Who is going to make up this new Jerusalem? Who's going to be in it? Who are its citizens? Who is going to be the bride? I just tell you, look to your right and look to your left and look behind you. These are the people in this church here and in other faithful gospel churches scattered throughout the world, men and women of different cultures and different ages, together united in Jesus Christ. You see, the church is not a mere human society. Friends, this is the bride of Jesus that he is going to perfect. And how we ought to love the church Yes, with its frustrations. Yes, with its difficulties. It still has sinners in it, doesn't it? It does. They are sinners whom the Lord is going to perfect one day in glory. Shouldn't that make us love the church so much more? So a new creation that will be our habitation. A new community of which we'll be a part. Third and finally now. Third and finally. What were we made for? We were made for a new blessedness. A new blessedness. We find this in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 to 4 speak of this new blessedness, both in terms of what we will experience and in terms of what we will no longer experience. And I actually want to deal with those in flip order. First of all, what we will no longer experience. We find this in verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Well, what are these things? Are these not the very things that seem to define our daily existence? In those days when we seem to go through a whole day without crying or without knowing any pain, we know 
that soon a day is coming when we will experience those things. But imagine what it's describing here. It's saying that you are going to enter a world that you will live in forever and ever and ever, and in that world there will never, ever, any more again be diabetes or arthritis or chronic illnesses. There will be no more aching voids from when your spouse dies or your child dies. There will be no more dementia or Alzheimer's. There will be no more anxiety about the possibility of being in a car crash or a plane crash or of going through a tornado or a hurricane or a flood. There will be a world in which there won't be any more loneliness won't be any more disappointed dreams, no more failed endeavors. There will be no more. And what is more than that? It will be God's own hand, we're told, that wipes away those tears from our eyes. Beautiful image, that is. You think of a little child, maybe crying herself to sleep. The mother takes that little child in her arms. What does she do? She puts one finger to one cheek and wipes away that tear. Finger then to the other cheek and wipes away that tear and says to her little child, it's going to be okay. I'm with you. Here we are told that it is going to be the Lord himself who is going to wipe away all of those tears from our eyes. And so... That is part of the blessedness of heaven is what we will no longer experience. There's an even greater blessedness in what we will experience in that place. And we find that in verse 3. And this is really the very heart of the passage. Because there we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. It's a promise that actually you and I would be able to trace if we desired all the way through the whole fabric of Scripture from beginning to end. It was a promise that had been given to Abraham at one point that he should be a God to to Abraham and to his children after them. It's a promise that we find in Leviticus 26.12 that I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. It was a promise enshrined in the tabernacle where God Himself dwelt among His traveling pilgrim people and in the temple where He established Himself. It was a promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and also in Ezekiel. That God should be amongst us as our God, and we shall be His people. But here it is a promise that is especially the very center of all the promises that are made in Revelation 21 and 22. That you and I shall be as we never have before in the presence of God. With access to God, we will know Him the Scriptures say, even as we are fully known. And this is going to be the glories of this place. And and dear friends, as we go through these two chapters, it's this theme that we're going to return to time and again, this idea of God 
dwelling in our midst, of us knowing Him as we have never known Him uh, before. And friends, that is the chief blessedness of heaven. This new creation, this new community, the new blessedness is primarily that we will know Him and be with Him as our God. What a vision this is. Just by way of conclusion, I just want to read for you some words that C.S. Lewis used in the final chapter of his final book in the Chronicles of Narnia. The book is The Last Battle. That final chapter includes these words. It says that the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Well, that real story will be written for you and for me when we enter into this land. So what should you and I do now? Well, should we not encourage one another in light of this day? Hebrews 10 tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but that you and I ought to come together to encourage one another. And how? All the more so as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another in light of this coming day. Can we do that? Can we exhort one another and encourage one another that it is to this land of pure delight that we soon will come? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the promises that it contains of a new heaven and a new earth, of a new community, of a new blessedness that will belong to your redeemed children. And Lord, we pray now for the grace to believe all that you have written and to live by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in response now. Our hymn is going to be the hymn, On Jordan's Stormy Banks, I Stand. On Jordan's Stormy Banks, it's an insert in your bulletin, and we'll stand and sing uh, together.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.